Welcome, and thanks for joining us. This is the Coding Compliance Podcast, the good, bad, and ugly, where we break down the complexities of billing and coding in healthcare and discuss how to operate and hopefully excel in an industry imposed with complex and ever-changing regulations. Here are your hosts, our authority on compliance, Ross Ronan, and coding experts, Neil Green and Mark Babst. Well, welcome to the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, the uh, Coding Compliance Podcast. This is our second one. Um, appreciate everybody for joining us today. Um, Mark and Neil, how are you doing? Doing great, thanks. Excellent, excellent. Well, we, we started by building on a compliance program and compliance plans um, that really had to do with coding and, and monitoring and auditing. But if we take a step back a little bit and we wanted to talk a little bit today and build on that compliance uh, coding plan about why, what's the first step in, in making sure that, that a healthcare organization, whether it's a hospital, whether it's a practice, really does have the right coding process in place. And let me just start off by saying why it's good from a compliance officer's perspective. So when a compliance officer is responsible for monitoring and auditing as per the, the federal sentencing guidelines and, and the OIG guidance, it's, it's really difficult to, to essentially correct an issue that a company has created because they haven't really established a very good uh, coding program to make sure that they are compliant. Um, when you have to go in and restructure the whole upfront process, then you end up having lots of error rates and a lot of, of findings in your audits that, that aren't really real because you haven't really come in and reestablished a good coding and compliance program. So from, from, from our standpoint, it's really important that the right people are doing the right things. Uh, the coding is going out correctly. Uh, not just overcoding, but also undercoding, making sure everything is captured correctly. And then once we start building that compliance program around this solid coding program, which is essentially part of the revenue cycle process, it, it makes the program a lot easier and it really does reduce the risk for any type of organization. So today we're going to talk a little bit about what it takes to have that right compliance, or I'm sorry, the, the coding program, the upfront part of the revenue cycle process. How do we make sure that things are done correctly uh, so that when the compliance program or some sort of internal QA comes over the top, uh, they can make sure that um, we're not you know, having a bunch of error rates that cause mitigation and disclosure issues. So when we talk about the, the first piece of really establishing a good solid coding program um, up front as part of the revenue cycle process. Let's dig in a little bit. Um, uh, Mark and, and Neil, I don't know who wants to take this on, but when we talk about who can code, right? There's a lot of different ways of, of, of putting people in place to, to actually assign a code. Um, and for everybody who doesn't know, why don't we back up a step and say, what codes are we talking about? What's important? So, so what codes are we talking about? And then who can code? So let's talk a little bit about which ones are, are most important. Well, so I think uh, clearly in today's world, at least for professional fee coding, the most important thing you're talking about is uh, CPT codes because uh, most revenue in, at least right now, is driven by CPT code. And so 
getting that correct, I think, is paramount to reducing your risk for uh, recoupment and for identifying uh, potential situations where you're going to get underpaid is to be able to make that as accurate as possible. And that would be followed up by modifiers, which can affect those CPT codes and uh, impact uh, claim denials, um, result in mispayment of claims. And so that's probably secondarily. And then I think uh, in order priority for these physician situations, the um, ICD-10 diagnoses is probably the third part of that <clears throat> triangle. But uh, certainly in terms of importance and, and uh, exposure from a compliance standpoint, while we want to get all the codes correct, that's probably the least currently um, important factor of it. There are subspecialties that are very sensitive to diagnostic codes, but um, most of them, most of the specialties are not. I think it's important to stress that when Neil says sensitivity to diagnostic codes, um, you've got to get the reason for the, the, the visit or the surgery right, but there might be multiple diagnostic codes uh, that add to it that are that can be important, but if if you if you mess up the CPT code and the modifier, you have a situation where, uh, as he said, you're not going to get paid, or you're going to get paid wrong, or you're going to get uh, in trouble with the law. And um, uh, diagnostic coding is is important. It's, it's less important, but it's it's critically important. And, and before we get into who can code, because I think it's very important to really understand um, the level of complexity when it comes to these CPT codes. When we talk about the difference, and, and then of course, value-based uh, reimbursement is going to drive a lot more of our ICD-10 coding and things like that. That's going to be the wave of the future. Um, it's not here today as we're still fee-for-service, so CPT is really going to drive that reimbursement. Um, but when we talk about, uh, you know, the, spe the specifics and the, this, the specific training and education that someone should have when they're coding, you know, what's more difficult? What's more difficult to code in ICD-10? And it's more difficult, it's all subjective, right? But when we talk about the individuals who are doing the coding, what's, what's a little bit more complex? Is it the, the CPT, uh, ENM? ENM codes versus ICD-10 versus procedures. Like, what's what's the more complex portion of it? I think the CPT codes, again, just because of the nature of the importance to the claim, um, <laughs> have a feeling that they're more complex. Certainly, ICD-10 coding is not simplistic uh, by any stretch of the imagination since uh, its implementation in October 1. Uh, we see a lot of dysfunction in the environment under uh, ICD-10 specificity. But again, because of its importance, I think CPT is hard to master. And because, um, you know, trying to figure out whether or not you have a, a coder or a vendor or a physician that really knows how to code, those things are going to be determined by specialty. So, um, Again, having the knowledge of the entire CPT book is rare, uh, indeed, because just the sheer uh, volume of CPT codes is staggering.
most physicians or providers, they, they, they're accustomed to touching a C, an ICD-10 code at some point, or ICD-9, ICD-10, as a, tra- as a transition went on. They were accustomed uh, to, to defining that because there's a lot of diagnostic, uh, it is diagnostic coding that goes into it. So, so that becomes a little bit more kind of second nature for them, I think. So let's talk a little bit about who actually can code. Um, what are the three different areas that you all have seen from a, uh, a coding perspective in, in multiple different, I call them business lines, but specialty areas throughout the country and in healthcare? What are the three different, three or four different type of, of issues or people that can do the coding? And, and let's talk a little bit about the good and the bad and the ugly on each one of those. Well, the first, obviously, would be the physician's provider or providers themselves. Um, The issue, I think, that we have on the con side with physicians is coding is not necessarily intuitive to the practice of medicine itself. And while there's clearly nobody who knows what they did more completely than the physician in in their interaction with the patient, the thought processes of treating a patient and also turning those into codes are two very different and distinct skill sets. And um, because we work with a lot of academic sites, one of the things I always look for when we're working with them is, you know, are they busy training their um, graduating residents and fellows in coding? And very few of them actually uh, do that. And so, that means most physicians graduating end up at some healthcare system or in a practice where they basically are totally unprepared, have not really gone through any significant curriculum of coding, and then are expected to code in those environments where physicians are coding. And I think that leads to a massive amount of dysfunction. And I would say one more part of the con of that is that if they get to an institution uh, where it's large, they may or may not have the right resource training that particular specialty. Um, and you also don't know whether their information is up to date. And I think the, uh, for, for their uh, ongoing uh, coding compliance programs, whether or not they're getting audited on a regular basis, oftentimes healthcare systems are constricted in the amount of compliance people and training people, education people that they have. So it may take a while for them to get, even if they do have the right information. That they, So I think that's the con of physician coding. Um, you know, obviously uh, physicians, there are physicians I encounter all the time that are very um, adept at coding. They've really spent the time learning it. So from an intellectual standpoint, certainly there's no physician that doesn't have the intellect and, uh, capability of learning it. It's just that it's an ongoing process and physician uh, patient treatment is their top priority. So. Over, over the years, Ross, uh, coding has essentially become a, a separate career path uh, from being a physician. And um, it, it's uh, just because you're a good physician and you know your specialty well, does not mean you can be a, you, you can code that work well. 
And one of the things that I've seen in my career is on multiple occasions when we have physicians that are coders is that, you know, they're doing the work, right? And, and they think in their mind all the things that they did, which sometimes doesn't translate into correct documentation. They're not actually capturing everything that they're doing. And so when they start to assign an E&M code, a level of service, um, they, tend to, they tend to think about all the things that they did, <laughs> not necessarily all the things that they documented. And that generally runs into a compliance problem down the road because we're always trying to prove that what we build out was correct and that the documentation supported the level of service that that was actually built, especially to Medicare, Medicaid, right? And so, so I always, always saw that as being a bit of a hurdle as well. And, um, you know, at some other, other podcasts, I'd love to talk a little bit more about physician documentation and provider documentation and how important that is. Uh, that's a whole nother separate episode <laughs> that we could talk about, but uh, that, that's really important. And then the other part that I see from a physician standpoint is, is that um, they went to school, lots of school, to take care of patients to make sure that they're providing medical care, not trying to figure out what code is this code and how many things do I need to count for a history and physical or for medical discipline, all of those things that the government requires for providers. And it generally becomes a byproduct of, of what they do. So, um, and, and then finally on the physician side, I, I see a lot of organizations wanting to um, utilize the providers for coding because it's, considered to be more effective or more efficient and cheaper to do so. And I always make the argument that you're taking time away from seeing other patients in lieu of just having someone who is, is an expert in the industry on the coding uh, side of it to be able to, to capture what is, what is actually done. So, so I agree with all those pros and cons. I just wanted to add a few, a few in, in myself. So let's talk a little bit about in-house coders. So the ones that are actually sitting within a revenue cycle department, or if it's a healthcare, uh, let's just say it's a management services organization or a hospital, they have a group of in-house coders. Talk a little bit about your experience with utilizing those um, in, in this kind of capacity. So uh, again, I think um, one of the big things for uh, coders that are part of a large organization, um, you know, there has to be a vetting mechanism and I'm surprised at the large number of uh, healthcare systems, academic sites, that have literally no skills test. And so they're assuming from a resume or a credential that <clears throat> the person they're about to hire is the right person. I think that's the biggest single negative that most organizations have. So I routinely see huge organizations with two, three, 4,000 uh, providers uh, where there is no skills test. This person comes, they call, do the vetting through a reference process, and that's good enough. Um, and so the problem with that is, you know, if the other site that they uh, came from also did that, and uh, let's say that their coding compliance program wasn't that robust, um, and the person was either getting misinformation or antiquated information, um, 
you then end up with a situation where you've got a coder with skill sets that you really didn't uh, vet and therefore they're not really up to doing the job properly. And we see a lot of that dysfunction. Another per, uh, con is organizations, because they struggle to find coders and all of their specialties that they have, they will resort to filling a, a job opening with just a certified coder that they believe they can train to the level of expertise that uh, they'll be really proficient in that specialty. And usually that's not the case. Uh, I see that not only in the initial assignments they get, but in the fact that uh, we've even seen as a reward for doing good in one specialty, when another job opens up in another specialty that may be deemed more desirable, they actually get first crack at that, even though they know nothing about that other specialty. So all those become cons, I think. And uh, a pro is obviously you have your own staff on there. There's a sense, at least, uh, of greater control. Um, so I think that that's what drives that most of all. Expand that as to external resources, right? Because there's a number of different external resources that that can either augment an in-house coder or that can augment physician coders, if you will. And I know you all do a, a big portion of this in your business, um, but what kind of external resources are available for uh, an industry or a healthcare entity that really wants to say, hey, you know what, the cost and the burden of having in-house employees doing the coding, not only that, but you know, the indemnification that comes with having an external resource to it is very important too when you look at it from a compliance and legal perspective. Um, you, that, that burden uh, becomes part of another entity's type of responsibility in your contractual allowance or your contractual, uh, your, in your contract. So what's the difference between the house and external coders and what are the pros and cons for those? So, uh, you know, obviously you're speaking about external resources. You'd be thinking about, you know, coding vendor operations and uh, those vary widely. Um, in the inception of the industry, um, I think that what you saw mostly were there were firms that focused on working on facility coding and those that um, ended up working on professional fee coding. Today, almost every organization offers some of both because of the fact that uh, you end up in a situation where almost all these healthcare entities have uh, integrated their physician networks into their ownership, and therefore they have to have a single solution. So, um, however, there are several models where um, a particular healthcare system will have multiple vendors as a way of addressing that and also of dividing up their work or as a, um, what they perceive to be precautionary measure so that they never have to be reliant on one vendor. Um, so then you're into the pros and cons of how that organization is structured and what sort of rules and they have about hiring coders. So some of, uh, the companies out there in the environment, um, they have, uh, they hire what we referred to in the uh, business as newly minted coders, where they have new certifications and have just gone through training. 
through a certification course. Um, and they then have some sort of mentoring program. Um, there's others like uh, our organization where you're busy um, only hiring people that have multiple years of experience. Now, again, that also varies across the organizational structure of competitors where you'll see people that just require X number of years of coding. And, um, you know, in our model, for instance, we have X number of years of specialty coding experience for a coder to be vetted in our organization. So uh, a lot of organizations also, if you ever coded in a particular specialty, uh, they will consider that as you have knowledge of that, as though that knowledge is up to date. Right. So again, those are some of the pros and cons to be looking for. So Mark, just as we wrap up who can code, um, you know, do you ever see any of, of these these three of us, we have providers, we have in-house coders, we have external resources, whether it's a coding company or, or whatever it may be. Um, when, we, when we do audits and we see kind of exposures, is any one of these more risky than the other? Or do we see some better trends on e either one of these three? And I, might, I imagine they all have their pros and cons, right? So we just went through them all, but <laughs> from a risk standpoint. They all have their pros and cons, right? Um, what we, uh, uh, unfortunately, um, the uh, what we see. I'm trying to. I'm trying to be politically correct here, uh, in in my choice of words. Uh, got to be careful. <laughs> I know. I, I know. I, uh, I, I'm married to a physician, so I, I, I can't really badmouth physicians <laughs> coding. But uh, what we find is that it's uh, generally suboptimal. Uh, and in that regard, it's what the doctors don't know about what happens at the other end, meaning at the payment and at the rejection end. It's what they don't know that can really bite them in the bottom uh, when it comes to code selection. Um, uh, what we see with in-house coders often is uh, what I call the, the, the four wall syndrome. They're taught how to code, they're instructed, they're, they're guided, by someone else who works in the same um, practice or or billing company or, or hospital system and they do it that way and they don't often get uh, feedback uh, from an literally from an audit uh, and we look at audits as an educational process they don't get the feedback to learn from their mistakes because nobody identifies their mistakes. They do it the same way that they were taught. Um, external resources, um, it, it, it's the same, it, it can be the same as, as both. The, the, the quality of coders is, is generally suboptimal and the only way to identify that is, as Neil mentioned, is with uh, uh, pre-employment proficiency tests and then uh, afterwards with ongoing audits that are educational and designed to provide the, um, the feedback uh, to, to get better. 
to improve. Yeah, I'd like to just add one thing to Mark's comment about the physician dysfunction. I think in today, we actually see more, not less of it, because a lot of health systems and medical groups have implemented a bonus program based upon RVUs. And I find these to be extraordinarily counterproductive. I know that the groups think that uh, the more RVUs that are produced, more money they're going to bring in, which is a good theory. But the problem is if it's not audited rigorously and the compliance departments aren't there all the time or you don't have an external audit program that's very robust, what ends up starting to happen is the physicians figure out that they can um, – influence their RVUs by unbundling, which of course is ends up either creating a liability if it does get paid at the other end that a, a third party can come back and collect, or if it's rampant and somebody like CMS or OIG sees that, you can get into fines and penalties. So I think that uh, what, what you really want to be contemplating when you if you do use that in your health system is you want to make absolutely sure that your audit programs are very robust because there's a lot of this going on now and then there's a lot of pushback that ends up happening like you weren't in the exam room with me you weren't in the um, operating room and then you know you start talking about as you did Ross the documentation not being there and, you know, the provider's still feeling they're entitled to something. So, um, you know, not understanding the rules properly leads to bad behavior. Understanding how to maximize RVU things leads to bad behavior. So there's a lot of bad behavior going on, I guess, is what Mark's saying. Absolutely. In my, in my experience, just to dovetail on that, is physicians don't want to code. They don't, they don't want to do that. Like I said, they, they want to spend their time taking care of patients and, and saving lives, and that's what they were, they were meant to do. And, uh, you know, the whole RVU discussion can be a whole other podcast. Um, but, uh, you know, dealing with physicians uh, my entire career, um, you know, those RVU structures are usually paid up front, and the collectability of whatever code may be is always, is always risky, too, because now we're getting into a lot of payers who are denying claims for whatever reason they're denying payment and then you've already paid out and you're not really getting the dollars in. So, so you had to absolutely understand exactly what you're talking about. And that's driving a, a big discrepancy, I think in, in um, you know, healthcare and the healthcare reimbursement world today. So let's just take those out of the realm, let's take the physicians out. Cause I think now we're looking for in a coder that, that is not necessarily a provider um, because now we're talking about like, what is a, what does a coder need to have? What do you look for in coders? Why are that important? Why is it important to either be certified or what kind of experience are you looking for and, and how do you adequately vet them? So, so let's talk a little bit about uh, what you guys look for in coders and, and starting off with, you know, do they have to be specialized or can they just come from AHIMA and have a vast, you know, certification of saying this is what I do for, for providers or for hospitals? What, what is the best way to look at and to look for in a coder? Um, uh, well, uh, it, it's important to know what uh, the, the ingredients that go into a uh, baking a coder. And 
what, what, what's involved is generally an online uh, course or a course given in a community college takes about 40, 50 hours to complete. Um, and they're taught a, to, uh, uh, to a little bit about anesthesia, a little bit about cardiology, a little bit about uh, uh, colorectal surgery, a little bit about all of these various specialties and subspecialties, just a little bit, uh, enough so that they can take a multiple choice test and pass it with a 70. Um, so, um, and that makes them certified. Uh, or at least able to become, uh, actually it makes them certified as an apprentice. And then if they take another class where they actually have practical uh, uh, questions, they can get that apprentice taken off their uh, uh, credential and they, they're a certified coder. That does not mean that they can code for an interventional radiologist or a uh, neurosurgeon or a, uh, a, a, a nephrologist because they don't have the specialty skills and knowledge to do that. So what we look for is, are many years of, uh, a minimum of three years of specialty specific experience. Uh, we, look, we then have, uh, multi, uh, we have 45 different specialty specific proficiency tests that they must pass with an A. Um, we, uh, many coders, because it is a, a credential driven industry, medical care, healthcare is credential driven, have all of these uh, letter salads of credentials after their names. Uh, one for inpatient coding, another one for outpatient coding, another one for orthopedic coding. Uh, we, we, we consider them, but our tests, our proficiency tests are what, what drive uh, our, our uh, uh, work uh, uh, decisions, it, whether or not they, they can join us or not. Experience. Uh, is is critically important in that specialty. Neil, I don't know if, if you have anything to add to that. Uh, I think you covered it pretty well. I, I, I would say that uh, <clears throat> when I, I think of coders and the, you know, I alluded to how most organizations use them, that's the biggest dysfunction. Yeah. Um, I think that any organization that doesn't have some sort of skills test that's the big way to de to determine what the coder knows and what they bring to you, not the number of credentials. Credential, I think, should be thought of as this is means that the person has been immersed into some portion of education. And then the specialization of a coder over time means that they have at least mastered the nomenclature of that specialty so that they understand uh, what it is that that particular provider is doing. And as Mark alluded to, in those educational sessions, you get a little bit of this, a little bit of that. There's no way um, in a 40 or 50 hour uh, course session that you're going to master the entire CPT book and be exposed to it and, um, and be an expert in coding in all those areas. Plus, uh, things like the AAPC curriculum, uh, for instance, do not cover 
certain specialties and you have to go outside of that to be able to get certification from a different organization for them. So I just. No, I, I totally agree. And, and when we look at it from a compliance perspective, you know, we, we tend to, at least in the programs that I have set up and I establish, coders are the gatekeepers, right? So whether they're the providers um, or they're in-house or, or uh, outsourced, they're the gatekeepers of what you can and can't do and how well, uh, you know, if there is a, a false claim issue, if it's an overcoding or undercoding issue. And we generally see you know, the specialized in the experience as being the better set of, of, of findings that we see. Someone who's been in the industry, someone who has, has really looked at if it's emergency medicine coding or anesthesia coding or behavioral health hospital coding, they've really immersed themselves in those areas and they've utilized their um, vast experience and, uh, you know, essentially experts around the industry to, to help them build their practice. Certification's great, um, but like I think I agree with you wholeheartedly, it's a, it's a building block for, for good coders and from a good compliance program standpoint, a good coding compliance standpoint, having that specialization and that experience up front is, is really, really important. When you're actually building a team, so now we're even boiling it down to even more of in-source versus external, and you're actually building, building a team, let's talk a little bit about why you would choose one or the other. Every, every healthcare provider, practitioner, company, <laughs> organization has to have some sort of way of billing uh, and collecting. And, and that starts with a good coding group. If you're going to actually build one, an internal one, um, why would you choose to do one internally? And then how would you think about um, building that coding team um, or, or consider an outsource side of it? So again, I, uh, I'm a big fan of skills testing. So while I would go through the process of looking for um, someone who is a coder in a particular specialty, I'd want to be able to vet those skills some way, shape, or form. Um, so part of the problem I think that a lot of organizations have is do you have a champion in that particular area? And so that becomes a particular issue. Do you have somebody that actually knows the answer to be able to create a test uh, for the skill set? And, and that is a real issue. So if I'm building a team, I want to, you know, start by uh, having managers that I can also identify by specialty that have substantial backgrounds in that. Even if I start off and I don't have a skills test that I can feel comfortable that their knowledge base is what's going to drive my team in that specialty if I have three or four coders in that specialty. Um, so a lot of it starts off with the managers, and I think a lot of times you'll see organizations uh, where a manager is spread across so many different specialties uh, that it gets hard to imagine that that manager can even vet vouch for the coders that they've hired. And so that's a, a big piece that they need to be able to do. So, um, you know, running a, a big coding operation for a big healthcare system is an expensive proposition. And, uh, you know, when it's all done in house, instead of using 
uh, variants of models where you can combine people from the outside with people on the inside, you end up seeing things like, I have to hire enough coders to um, make sure that I can cover the workflow and I also to be able to count for vacation, sick time, all that sort of thing that goes on all the time in an operation. And I also have to, what happens when especially line grows and I need a half a FT. Well, you can't hire a half a person. You have to hire a whole person. So oftentimes I find that healthcare systems are busy overstaffing themselves just because they're not thinking outside the box where you could have a hybrid model of people in-house and out-house. It actually gets really expensive too when you do it wrong. Right. Yes. <laughs> so, 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 yeah, you build this program with a lot of, of uh, employees and benefits. And then if you do it wrong, it's penalties and refunds and even lost revenue from the standpoint of undercoding. Um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of, of having, uh, a, if you do have an internal coding team, you really do augment that with some external resources because things come across across the nation differently, right? So somebody may have an enforcement action over in the East Coast that someone in the West Coast may not have seen and and really having an external um, program to be able to, to utilize as expertise, you really get the best of both worlds if you're not gonna fully outsource your your coding piece of it. So I you know I think those are all Great thoughts, uh, Mark. Any 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 thoughts on the uh, internal versus external coding teams, or or which ones? Uh, you know, how, what's the best combination, or one versus the other? Well, there's no best. The, the, well, the best combination is determined by the accuracy of the claims, um, and uh, that can be coded internally by physicians or externally by a, a third party. Um, um, and the only way you can know of the excellence is through auditing uh, and um, uh, to, to determine that. So uh, each, uh, m many practices have invested a lot of money in their coding staff and it's been a good investment. Others that we know, it's been a waste of money because the quality that they get is so of of accuracy is so substandard it just doesn't cut it so you you've, you've got to look at each one as as an, an individual case and uh, make the determination from there what's well, a great discussion today um guys related to to coding compliance and when we talk about coding compliance plans and building out this, this compliance structure to make sure you're auditing and monitoring uh, correctly. I do think that, that having the right coders and having that right process up front really protects any organization, protects their investment, protects all the individuals that are associated with it. And, uh, you know, throughout this conversation, we really discussed a lot of different ways that, that an organization can approach this. And I think what's really important to wrap it up is to say it should be really important that you focus on this before it is your one of your number one things from a revenue cycle, from a compliance perspective, um, all of the aspects of, of running an, a healthcare organization is to really take the time and set up your coding and your coding 
uh, structure, whether it's internal or external, or use your providers and whatever kind of education that you provide to them to make sure that they are they are coding correctly is really really important, and I think it really sets the bar for how a compliance program and a code and a compliance plan will take a look at the revenue cycle process. So, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it, and I think uh, there's some really great information here about uh, about setting up the coding. Uh, profiles for each one of these organizations. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Coding Compliance Podcast. The good, bad, and ugly. Sponsored by Ronan Healthcare Consultants and the Coding Network. With our hosts, Ross Ronan, Neil Green, and Mark Babs. Please tune into iTunes and Spotify on the first Friday of each month for a new episode. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our podcast website or leave us a review.